What's up, everybody? What's going on? Welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Data Science Happy Hour number 52. That means 52 weeks of being here every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Central Time to uh, just have a gathering of amazing data heads and just talk all sorts of amazing stuff. Man, thank you guys so much. I'm eternally grateful for every single one of you who show up and make these data science happy hours possible. I literally, it would not be what it is without you guys. Shout out to all the people who take time out of their busy schedules to come here and, and answer questions. Tom Ives, Vin Vashista, Ken G. Thank you guys for coming and, and helping and answering people's questions. You know, Dave Langer, all the people that are here since pretty much the beginning. I'm eternally grateful to all of you guys. Data Science Happy Hour would not be what it is without you guys coming here and just dropping such amazing knowledge on everyone. And to everybody else, everybody who comes here to learn and to grow and get better, thank you guys for taking time out of your schedule to, to make a commitment to improving, man. I really, really appreciate you guys uh, being here and, and making this happen, man. Like, that is, it's crazy. I did not, did not think it would last this long, but it has every single Friday. And I think, you know, I think we're, we're, we're gearing up for another 52 of these weeks for sure. Damn a year. And I know a lot of you have come a long way. I know a lot of folks here have uh, just came so far, man. Like, I mean, a lot of people landing new jobs, a lot of people, you know, getting new opportunities and whatnot. Um, and everybody's growing a little bit. I'm, I'm just wondering how far have you come in the last 52 weeks in the last 52 weeks? you reflect back on where you were last October at this time, how far have you come? How far have you come? And where are you going in the next 52 weeks? I want to know. This is something that I, I want to know, man. What's going on? Where, how far have you come the last 52 weeks? Where are you going in the next 52? Uh, let's start with Monica, and then um, we'll go to uh, Eric. And by the way, as usual, if you guys have questions, let me know. Awesome. Thank you so much, Harpreet, for starting with me. I actually can't stay, but I wanted to come in and uh, say a huge, huge thank you for putting this event on. Um, it has been a pleasure to be here to meet such amazing people um, start to finish. I mean, I've just been on roller coaster with everybody else throughout these past you know, two years, and it's been really, really wonderful to get together, you know, at least on a weekly basis with these wonderful people. So again, Thank you. Thank you so much. And congratulations. 52 weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Congratulations to all of us here for making this happen and just creating this awesome space for folks. So before you go, Monica, let us know, man, what do you got planned for the next 52 weeks? What's going on? Where are you headed? Oh, the next 52 weeks, just to remain awesome, continuous learning, of course, learn something new every day to keep your mind fresh. I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, let's go to Eric. And after Eric, whoever else wants to go, let me know. Monica, thank you so much for swinging by. Uh, maybe after Eric, we can go to Ken G. And then after Ken G, maybe we can hear from Deepak, who is somebody I've probably never heard from before. So I'd love to hear from you. Ashen, I know Ashen's got some big news to share with us as well. Eric, how far are you coming the last 52 weeks? Where are you headed? Okay. Yeah. Let's see. 52 weeks ago, <clears throat> beginning of October, uh, just starting module two of the fall semester of my master's. And so that means we were just starting into learning about text analytics and uh, decision trees and Monica Basket and 
stuff like that. Totally brand new. I did not know one. I didn't know anything about art. And at least some work with it. And uh, yeah, so I definitely. Oh, and I was I was active on LinkedIn, but I definitely like got more active. Just got more traction. So it's nice because finally be one of those people who can look back a year and say, "Hey, I stuck with that. I saw some results from being consistent." Looking fifty-two weeks forward, I hope to be doing a lot of the same stuff I'm doing right now, but more confidently, just because I have more experience with some of like the, especially like company-specific stuff, because it takes time to learn that stuff. And then the other piece is year. A year ago, I, I've been pretty solid on kind of my personal personal brand is as a human um, in a lot of ways, but I've been really like professionally what that looks like. And so now for the next year, I want to like finally. So right, right at the good part, Eric's microphone cuts out completely. Your microphone has been shaky this entire time. Oh, no. Uh, but Better now, uh, is it working out? No, it doesn't sound that that great. But yeah, it sounds like a tin cans connected by strings. Yeah. Hey, but it is all good, Eric. Thank you for being here. You're one of the OGs. I think you'll probably, you know, you, Austin, Ashen. Uh, I know you guys were, and we go too. You guys were one of the early, early, like you know, adopters of this office hour thing. Thank you guys so much. You guys, you guys were here back before I rebranded it to happy hour i rebranded it to a happy hour just so i have an excuse to drink beer at 4 30 in the afternoon um but but uh yeah dude thank you so much eric all right so maybe once we uh get your microphone situation figured out we'll hear what you got planned for the next two weeks also, am i back now yes so much better so much oh better. hallelujah okay i keep hitting my cord and it like rips it out okay anyway next 52 weeks is just like getting more solid on my professional brand because my personal brand's there. I want to get solid on the professional brand. And not because I want to use it to like make money and anything like that, but just because I want to feel like I have given given myself the direction for it, you know? And just because that that just feels good to be like setting some of those things moving forward. That's it. The Data Science Community Content Creators Award. Favorite LinkedIn profile. Favorite LinkedIn person. Eric, thank you so much. Uh, also, man, a huge shout out, Greg Kokio. Greg's been, you know, even here consistently since the beginning. Thank you so much, Greg. Uh, Joe as well. You guys, Russell as well. You guys, everyone, like, I, I know how valuable everyone's time is, but the fact that you guys just carve out time to come and help people, it like it means a lot to me. This thing would not be what it is without all of you OGs in the field uh, dropping, dropping knowledge. Ken, what's going on, man? How, how, how far have you come in the last 52? Where are you going in the next 52? But first, congrats on a full year of, of the happy hours. This is incredible. I'm so happy it keeps going. I look forward to these every week when I can make it in. Um, in, in terms of what's happened to me in the last 52 weeks, honestly, a lot of it is uh, interpersonal and related to this. I, I've met probably at least 52, one new person a week uh, that I've had a meaningful connection with through, through my podcast. A lot of the people who I've met here. Uh, and to me, that's one of the most valuable things that that I've gained is that I've been able to have really deep, rich relationships with people through this community that that I didn't have previous to this. Uh, from a more 
uh, like outside of that, from a quantifiable perspective, if you look at LinkedIn, you know, I probably had a uh, very little presence there, maybe less than a couple thousand people relationships there to now over something 50, 60,000, whatever it is. Um, my audiences on different platforms have also grown, you know, quite a bit in that range. And hopefully that's because I've been producing good things. I think over the last 52 weeks, I've produced hundreds of pieces of content, which is something that I'm personally very proud of. And those are the things that I celebrate more than any, uh, any of the, the other growth, because those are the measurable things that I can control. Uh, what's next? I'm still working on that right now. I'm taking a break after my really busy last uh, month or two, but I'm excited to start creating more content again. And I think I'm really happy when I have routine and consistency. If I'm creating videos, I'm meeting new people, I'm producing content, I'm having fun. All of the other positive things take care of themselves. So that's kind of my hope for the next 52 is I can keep to routine and, and keep things plugging along in the same way. Uh, and again, just to remain grateful for, for everyone here and the relationships that I'll continue to make. Absolutely love it. If you guys have not been following Ken's Instagram stories, uh, he's been on an adventure the last few few days getting that VIP car treatment and uh, and uh, hotel room treatment. Hope you had a good time out there, man. Uh, yeah, dude, definitely awesome. relationships, man. Some of these relationships that are formed have like literally changed my life. Like the opportunities that have happened to just connect with uh, like OGs in the game, like Joe and Tom and Vin and Greg and just all these amazing folks, uh, Ben as well. And, uh, you know, just meeting new people, the fact that, uh, that I had a job from doing this is pretty crazy. Um, let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's go to, uh, where did Deepak go? Is he still here? Deepak, man. Well, I don't think I've ever seen you in the happy hour, but this is one hell of a happy hour to, to come to. It's, you know, one year anniversary of this, man. How you doing? Uh, how's your last 52 weeks been? Where's the next 52 weeks going? By the way, shout out to the new Ternary Data. I probably butchered that name, Joe. Uh, Ternary, Ternary. You got it right. Yeah, Ternary Data folks that uh, that are in the building. Uh, Aaron and uh, Matt and who is it? Loss. Right on, man. Thank yeah. you guys for coming. Uh, for everybody that is uh, tuning in, let me know if you got questions. If you're in the room, let me know if you got questions. I will queue you up. If you are watching on LinkedIn or on YouTube, also, I will queue you up. Uh, Tor, what's up? I see you on LinkedIn, man. I miss having you in the room. Uh, thank you for being such a supporter. Um, if anybody doesn't have questions, we are going to just keep on uh, going through with these. Uh, you know, tell me how you've been in the last 52, where you're going to the next 52. Also, shout out to Vivian. Vivian, I see you. Thank you uh, for being here. All right, Deepak, hopefully I killed enough time for you to uh, uh, have, a, have a response. It looks like your microphone is... Uh... Oh, just a second. All right, looks like your microphone is... Oh, there you go. Hey, you got it? Yep. Yeah. I'm Deepak and this, I'm new and it's my first week of like, I just attended these sessions like I'm interested in data analytics and every day like I'm a learner like I did my MS in analytics from Texas A&M back 2017 and I went back to Nepal and I work, started working and now I'm in New Zealand like working as a strategy and planning analyst for like Hot City Council like I started this role just like on 29th September, just a few days ago. And just uh, it's my passion to do learning in analytics. Like, and I follow people from analytics and everything that I like. I look into like any kind of learning materials and I follow people. And oh, I man. feel like 
in this place, like I can learn, like, and like I can increase my personal branding, like professional branding too, and I can learn different things from different parts of the world. And thank yeah. you for creating this platform and congratulations for the, any like one year. Yeah, man. One year in the game. Thank you so much. Uh, shout out to uh, to everybody else that's just joining. Uh, I see Greg has a question. Uh, so we'll go to Greg after this. But Deepak, congratulations on the new role. I'm ha- you know, happy you're here. Looking forward to seeing where you're going to go over the next 52 weeks. Um, Thank you so much. Shout out to Auntie. I see Auntie's in the building. Auntie is probably uh, the only person that's listened to every single recording that I have pushed out all 210 hours. Uh, uh, shout out to uh, Tandy for that. Also, Ashen just landed a new job about a month ago. So congrats to you for that, Ashen. Definitely looking forward to hearing uh, from you. Let's go to uh, Greg's question. By the way, if you're listening on LinkedIn, go ahead and smash that share button. Share this with your network. Tag everybody in this room that you see. Let's get this thing uh, going on. If you have questions, you can leave them in the chat or in the comment box. Greg, what is your question, my friend? Go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, uh, heartbreak kudos to you man um and happy anniversary to uh the office hours and you know this is just a translation of uh two key things that that you know anyone can have for to achieve success and you 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 have them uh you have consistency uh and um you have determination so uh, you show up every Friday, but also kudos to everyone who uh, show up on a regular basis as well. Um, I'm always on a learning, um, you know, uh, mode whenever I come here, and it's it's amazing to to, to listen to you all. Um, so my question is about: I was reading this article the other day, and I and I never thought about this. Um, so throughout a data science lifecycle uh, pro- project lifecycle. You know, you you come up with a business problem, you uh, do all the cleaning, et cetera. You develop a couple models, right, to make sure you do some cross validations. And then you may find that three of them uh, may be uh, good, like give you good results. And you may do some sort of ensemble uh, and find that this ensemble of these three models uh, give you even a better result uh, than having them individually. Now, is there a way, is it like um, good practice to even decide to put that ensemble to production? If so, what are the what are the caveats to doing that? Like, what are the things that would make you regret pushing something like that to production if you cannot find uh, something better than just that ensemble? Yeah, so I've definitely done that. I've, uh, I've once ensembled five models together and spit that out as a prediction. Um, it becomes mostly an engineering challenge. I mean, you still have just one single API where the data comes in, um, but hopefully all of your different algorithms are, you know, predicting off the same data model. I mean, that might be neater that way, but uh, uh, let's hear from from other folks. Uh, Ken, I see you have your hand up, and I'd love to hear from either uh, Joe or Matt Housley after that. Ken, go for it. Yeah, this this might be on the more obvious side, but I find myself also just forgetting this from time to time is that like model complexity can lead to like the more complex our models are, the more things that could possibly go wrong. I think we're all familiar with Occam's razor and 
just being careful about, okay, if we have, whether it's more data sources, more different algorithms we're using, there's more considerations we have to take into play into how data can be skewed or uh, in like, you know, uh, whatever our different algorithms are optimizing on. So I don't think that that's a, like an as actionable uh, a thing about putting that into production, but it is something we should always be thinking about is, is the other model so much more simple with very similar results. That might be a, a still a better one to go through because it's easier to explain or it's easier to understand or we can see the, the faults in it. So that would be my, my two cents on that front. Yeah, and actually that, that's an excellent point. Uh, so when I did deploy those five models to production and averaged out the prediction, um, what, what I actually ended up, what, what I was doing on the back end, Greg, was actually was trying to figure out which of these five models actually performs better on unseen data because during training, they were all giving really close, like like statistically, the predictions were not off by by much. Um, like I, I couldn't statistically say that one of these models was better than the other. So I said, let me push them all to production, average the prediction, and and you know collect more data and then again run a test to see which one ends up doing better in unseen data and then promote that one as the only one that serves a prediction so that was kind of the pipeline i was going uh for when i did do that five model deployment but yeah it's definitely that <laughs> not something to continue doing uh let's hear from uh i think joe uh next joe or matt yeah I don't know. I, I mean, ensemble learning, it, it's interesting. Uh, one of the first uh, um, things I did with machine learning way back in the day was um, we used to do ensemble learning uh, with the SBMs. This is before the days of uh, uh, derp learning, deep learning. So um, I, I think it's a good approach. I, I don't see much wrong with it in, in production. I would say you just got to make sure you're not overfitting. Um, typical things you do want to do is just make, yeah, obviously make sure you're, you're uh, um, you know, monitoring um, for the time you have to retrain your model and so forth. But I don't, I don't see any uh, issue with using ensembles. Um, it's been uh, used quite often for quite a while. Aaron, uh, do you have any thoughts on ensemble? Have you done much with that? I mean, explainability is a big deal. And I don't know. I, I mean, how accurate? I, I liked uh, what Ken said. How accurate does it need to be? Um, you get in a few more points where you could use a simpler model. And then what are you, what's the production use case? Is it like an overt product where you're doing like a recommendations engine or a self-driving car or something where, you know, it's gotta be fast and perform or you shipping off weights for like other people to consume and use would feed into that. How, you know, we, I, when we used it at Overstock, we sold furniture. So a few points doesn't really, help a whole lot with selling furniture versus the complexity of managing that. So I'm always going to break it down to a, how, how do you manage the model in the life cycle and what's the cost of keeping that in production versus um, a few points in accuracy. If you're doing medical equipment, then probably that few points is worth it. I don't know. So since you kind of called me out, I, that's my response. <laughs> no worries, man. Yeah. Can you guys hear me okay? I'll, I'll give my practical yeah. advice on this. I'm sitting yeah. in the courtyard, so there might be music in the back. No, no, perfect, perfect. Okay. Clear. Yeah, so, so one thing I like to emphasize is just get a, a decent, like very basic model out quickly to the point where I think a lot of data scientists like to be really critical of prepackaged models offered on cloud platforms. My attitude is get something out the door, show it works, and then you can start running your refinements kind of behind the scenes pre-production 
You've got them running, you've got them automatically training, you can measure the results versus actual results, and then deploy more advanced enhancements over time. I guess my advice on ensemble learning would be iterative refinement, get something simple, practical, working out the door, and then gradually maybe you can add more things to your ensemble if you yeah, actually see measurable differences. Yeah, the issue with ensemble too is um, every time you have to retrain, you're probably going to get a different ensemble. That's just how the cookie crumbles on that one. So it's good uh, though. You should use yeah. it. Um, any uh, anything to add there? Apparently, Makiko is in the building, but I don't see her. Makiko, shout out to Makiko, uh, one of the OGs of the office hours. Thank you for being ever so helpful. Also, shout out to Dylan and Kristen, who I've not seen in a very, very long time. Good to see you back, my friends. Makiko, go for it. Are you here? I see your hands raised. Sorry, but the oh. really funny part is I accidentally hit that button. I was oh. trying to raise my hand. Um, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, but actually, uh, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to find an article by Chip Quinn, um, who wrote it's something along the lines of data scientists should not have to know Kubernetes, um, which that was, which that was necessarily her central. Okay, so that was her central point. But as part of that article, she talks about how you know there's a lot of like leaky abstractions between the dev and prod environment, and so from like the MLN ML ops serve team perspective, the way we kind of treat it is like can you package it up as a Python package or could you, can you put it behind an API endpoint? And that's kind of like the, the sort of bias, which is that to some degree, like for our data science teams, they're sort of focused on the experimental like dev environment. Um, so they can kind of experiment with different models, whether it's ensemble or whether it's deep learning um, for us, on the ML and ML ops side, we're kind of like, okay, well, can we like integrate it into a pipeline and an infrastructure? So that's kind of like how we sort of view it in the sense of, I don't want to say it's, it doesn't matter whether it's on an ensemble, it's an ensemble model, but essentially to some degree, like in the longer term, the longer scheme of things, um, sometimes just having a really simple model that works really well, that we can monitor, that we can measure the performance of, uh, will go a much longer way than something that is architecturally very, very complex and for which we may not be able to experiment or like measure the performance of or A-B test. So that's kind of like my two cents. But yeah, sorry, the raised hand was accidental. I didn't well, intend to actually you. say anything. Well, Makiko, it was good to see you here again after so long. That uh, presence was missed. Thank you for the... Uh, insightful full comment there uh, also shout out to uh to auntie who is in the sauna that's awesome the sauna is an amazing place uh let's go to mark who says wouldn't it be more dependent on the dag talk to us about that then after mark we'll go to matt blas i just saw you raise your hand uh matt um so let, let's do this let's actually let's go to matt and then we'll go to mark yeah so my work is starting to use something like like auto um not auto ml they're using ml flow does anyone have like any advice on like on that or any other systems that are similar to MLflow? I, I know how MLflow works. It's like recording the uh, experiments, the artifacts, but I'm just, I'm very new to it. So I'm just wondering if anyone has any advice or any insights on that. Yes, for that. You, can, you can use Comet for that. Comet is an amazing <laughs> platform for you to manage all of your experiments and it's free uh so tinyurl.com forward slash try comet check out comet 
Um, seriously, though, it's it's an epic product and it is um, it's useful as hell. Uh, so try comment. Um, Mark, let's go to uh, let's go to 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 your question. Um, because you know, otherwise y'all start talking about weights and biases and stuff. That could be a conflict of interest for me. It's just, just comment. Try comment. Uh, Mark, where are you at? Are you still here? Don't see Mark. All right. Looks like Mark has uh, dropped from the call. Let's go to um, go to Austin's question. Austin, go for it. Yeah. So my question is just around um, the when trying to just kind of take in the landscape of what's going on in the field. Um, whether it be focused, like you're focused on a particular topic for the moment, or you're just trying to keep up on, oh, here's something new that's coming out, whether it be a library, software, something. What kind of strategies do people employ to uh, smartly uh, uh, intake that information and kind of how do you filter it down? Because um, I realize I, 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 I probably should do a little bit more reading, and I'm try- I want, but I want to be more uh focused and efficient about doing it so what are some strategies that people use to kind of uh, filter that down when there's just so much out there yeah let's go to uh let's go to to, to vivian then after vivian let's go to uh to dylan vivian look surprised sorry i didn't mean to catch you off guard yeah can i not go first i'm sorry okay yeah definitely uh, let's, go, let's go to let's go to dylan i was about to say the same thing could you repeat the question <laughs> yeah so when just trying to learn a little bit more about what's going on in the field, AI, machine learning, data, whatever, um, how do you go about uh, absorbing and being more focused? Because there's there's so much available out there. What do you? What kind of strategies do you do to like find focused things? But outside of maybe doing towards data science or analytics, video, are there other areas where you go to to get that information? Yeah, I kind of took couple pronged approach one um, with books just started with one and then as references were added in there kind of checked those out Um, another part different newsletters and just kind of picking very narrow ones so I know like the Andre Burkov one um, has always been great for me and kind of just building off of that and just kind of taking in as much as I can and then podcasts as well um, Harp Reads has been great. There's been a bunch of episodes on there that have actually gone further and checked out those people. And that's been really helpful when you get like, you know, a one hour preview of someone and how they communicate. And if you like the information that they have, most people that are on a podcast are going to have further information out there, whether it's their website, LinkedIn, whatever else. Um, and then just kind of following down that rabbit hole and seeing if it gets me where I want to go. But I will say for me, it's been a lot of trial and error. Um, some of them don't lead great places. Some of them, the information isn't as great as you want. And some of them, um, people just aren't as knowledgeable as you hope. Um, yeah, hopefully that helps a bit. Thank you very much, Dylan. I see uh, Joe and Mark have their hands up. So let's go to uh, Joe. Then after Joe, we'll go to Mark. And then then I'd love to hear from uh, from hopefully Vivian uh, or anybody else that wants to uh, chime in. If you, if you got any tips for our friend Austin, go ahead and smash the reactions button raise your hand uh, let me know so that way i can add you to the queue uh joe go for it it's insane i who saw uh, matt turk's um data landscape uh, infographic the other day yeah i saw you posted that in the uh, mlops community slack yeah. yeah there's like i think more data startups and there are atoms in the known universe right now <laughs> so it's kind of crazy there, there's a lot to know um and it, it keeps growing so um 
I mean, the, the approach that I, 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 and I'm trying to kind of second guess how I would approach things now, but the way I have done it for the longest time, um, I have an iPad and I just queue up articles throughout the week onto it to the point where there's, I mean, anywhere from 30 to 100 articles. And I spend the weekend just reading. Uh, Matt knows this, like reading habits are pretty legendary. So there's no shortcut though. I mean, you got to filter through, I think you just read a lot of stuff. So I, and I get a lot of uh, stuff from maybe Hacker News, newsletters, um, and, uh, you know, just random stuff I find online. And I think between all that, that tends to be... Um, a good way. I tend to read very widely too, because I think there's a lot of things. You, if you focus too much on data science proper, you tend to miss the bigger picture of what's happening in other fields that will eventually influence uh, data science, for example. So I read a lot of uh, programming blogs. I think a lot of things start with software engineering and usually filter down from there because I think things just tend to be uh, ahead of the curve in terms of practices. Um, so that's some suggestions. Uh, YouTube's also great. Um, Books are great, but but you know I would say the challenge with books is you really got to uh, pick your books carefully because by the time they come out, you got to realize that that uh, writing and editing and release process is uh, quite lengthy. And at the rate the data field's changing right now, there's no guarantee you're going to get current information. Um, Mikiko says focus on the fundamentals or specific topics. I think that's also a great approach as well. There's a lot of noise out there, but you get signal by focusing on fundamentals. So that's yeah. my two cents. Oh, thank you very much. Um, uh, so shout out to some new faces I just saw real quick uh, before we get to Mark, but it's to say what's up to, uh, to Gina and Tomas. I think it's Tomas. Also shout out to uh, Al Bellamy. Good to see all you guys here, man. Super excited to see you guys here. And by the way, uh, real quick, uh, shout out to, uh, to Nick Singh. Nick, what's going on, man? Uh, happy to have you here. Uh, so uh, let's go to uh, Mark Freeman. And uh, then after that, we'll go to uh, Eric and then Co-Stub. How you guys managing this learning thing, man? All the shit out there for you guys to learn. A lot of stuff to wade through. How do you figure out where to go? What move to make? By the way, if you guys got questions, let me know. I will add you to the queue and drop it in the comments or in the chat right here. Mark, go for it. Hey, everyone. Uh, so similar to other people, newsletters are, are amazing um, because they have someone who's already curated it for you. One of my favorites, Data Elixir. Um, that's a, one of my favorite ones to read. And also, um, Andrew's uh, Deep Learning or Deep AI um, newsletter has been really good as well. Um, but beyond that, something I really like are company blogs. And the way you can kind of think through and is like, you know, in the ML space, no one's really figured out how to do it end to end well. And so you have all these kind of piecemeal pieces of, of infrastructure. So like, for example, Comet has like the um, the, the experimenting management um, component, you know, uh, five chain may have like a data, data ingestion component, right? So there's different pieces of the chain. And so where are you interested in that chain? You know, are you in the analytics side? Are you in the production side? Maybe some data ingestion side? Identify what the top companies are and then identify their blogs and just read through their blogs. And the key thing to remember is like one of those blogs are trying to sell you something. So <laughs> take it with a grain of salt, but you're seeing like, what's their framework for understanding a problem? And they're trying to sell to a particular use case and and uh, and like have a particular value proposition to a problem in the market, which is probably something that's larger in the greater market as well. And so those are similar problems you can solve. And so like, how are they approaching different problems for that? And so uh, one of my favorite blogs are, are like the Databricks blogs. Um, I, I really like just reading how they're thinking about, about data for things. Again, <laughs> they're trying to sell you something. So take it with a grain of salt. But um, I think just 
reading through how how different companies are also like through podcasts through interviews how they're talking about the problems they're facing and how they're trying to solve it has been really helpful for me to learn about the space and like what's new out there and also like how to apply my skills everyone's trying to sell you some everyone even me i'm trying to sell you me uh so let's hey, go to a, let's go let's go to uh Eric and then Coast Up and then Nick, yo, if you want to chime in here, I'd love to hear from Nick. Uh, if you guys don't know Nick, he just released a uh, best-selling book. So uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that as well. Ace the Data Science I'm, Interview. I'm here to sell something, you know? He's, yeah. he's not wrong. I'm here to show something. <laughs> <laughs> so let's yeah, go to, yeah, let's go to Eric, then Coast Up, then, then Nick. And then if you guys have questions again, like just let me know in the chat. I'll add you to the queue. Or in the comment section, uh, if you want to chime in on this, um, I mean, I think Ken probably would have some good, good, good uh, words of wisdom here as well. So I'd love to hear from you. Uh, go for it, Eric. Yeah. So kind of similarly along the lines of what uh, Kiko was saying about sticking with the fundamentals, <clears throat> and that's to filter out this the extra stuff. I just want to know what's going to be useful to me. And so if I'm looking to work with a certain person or work with a, work with a certain company or whatever, it's like, well, I'm just going to go and I'm going to look at that thing or look at what they're interested in or what their needs are. And then that helps me decide where I want to start. And I'm, you know, dumb enough in enough ways that starting with the fundamentals is where I'm pretty much always going to start. Um, and so, and so that, and that, that helps me also like totally relieves a ton of pressure because what I'm looking for a lot of times is I'm looking for validation that what I want to learn or what I think is interesting is valuable and enough that it's sufficient. Because if I can see that somebody that I look up to or appreciate also thinks that something is valuable, well, thank goodness, I don't have to go and try and learn everything else as well because ain't nobody got time for that. And so that's kind of how I, how I decide what I want to do next and sift through it. Awesome. Great advice, Eric. Um, let's go to, to, to Coast Up next. And then I forgot that I was going to go to Vivian. So after Coast Up, go to Vivian. Then anybody else want to chime in, let me know. Um, definitely want to hear from Nick and Ken as well. But after Coast Up, we'll be Vivian. So, so this to me is a classic robotics problem, right? It's an exploration versus exploitation kind of situation. You got so much stuff out in the world to learn. You can try to learn everything, but good luck with that, right? You can try to figure out, oh, what's the latest stuff but good luck with that by the time you find and verify that it's the latest someone else has published something new and you know mind-blowing on it you can try to figure out oh is this the perfect solution like is this the perfect thing that i need to learn next and still waste your time trying to figure that out rather than actually learning it so i'm trying to kind of change steps now and just pick up anything that passes the 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 basic pub test right like I have a look at, like you said, Eric, like are there a few people that have recommended it as, uh, you know, some reasonably um, well-known uh, researchers behind it, for example, what's the sources from and just kind of filter a little bit by that. And then it doesn't really matter if I'm learning specifically the best or the latest stuff. The fact is, if I haven't read it, I'm probably going to learn something that I didn't know before, right? Um, that's one of the biggest things that I'm trying to change in my mindset. Before I was like, oh, I need to make sure that I plan out my learning so that it's perfect. I just don't want to waste the time doing that anymore. The other side of it is also we're trying to be experts across a very broad, a very broad field, right? I might question that. Um, I don't think we all can be experts across the whole broad, wide, amazing field of data science, right? Me personally, I'm focusing on 
mostly vision problems. And I pick up a few things here and there about non-vision related problems. But if I focus myself on the vision related problems, because my interest comes from a robotics background, I can then, uh, you know, I, I can then develop expertise on that front. And then you can team up with other people that don't know. And then you learn way faster in that way. If we're all trying to be, I mean, you need a good balance of generalists and specialists in any field, right? So I think you're naturally seeing people, some people exploit a deep set of knowledge and other people broaden up a little bit more. So these conversations kind of bring that mix together. Also, thank you very much. Yeah, computer vision is interesting. I wonder, can we teach computer sight or perception, computer foresight? I don't know, man. That's an interesting philosophical question. Let's go to, let's go to Vivian. After Vivian, let's go to Ken and then Makiko and then, uh, and then Nick. Yes, I told uh, said I'll go on to, to Nick Nick. And, but by the way, if you guys got questions, let me know. I'll go ahead and add you to the queue. So far, I've got Greg up for another question. And then after Greg, I got Ken up for a question on ML ops. Uh, Vivian, go for it. Um, well, I guess that I, a lot of people have kind of like iterated things I was thinking about and stuff. So just one thought I had to add sort of to this pile of wisdom is um, that I don't know, like when I first started learning data science, I felt like I was trying to like consume the internet basically as a whole. And it was really overwhelming. And I still find myself like falling into that hole sometimes of feeling like I have to read it all and do it all and consume it all. And instead I have specifically just picked a few things that I like and backed off and then just trusted that like the right information will come to me at the right time. If I'm like following my own curiosity and interests and stuff like that, like I don't know. I I don't know. I, I just feel like it can be really overwhelming trying to like be on the forefront of everything, kind of like, you know, what people have been saying that it's so hard. So instead just like lead with your curiosity and like read what feels interesting and then just trust that the right information will find you at the right time. And it's worked so far for me. So yeah. Vivian, thank you so much. Uh let's go to Ken, then then Makiko, then Nick. Uh, actually, Vivian, that is extremely relevant. That is, I think what I'm going to describe, what I do is like a very natural extension to what you do. It might be also just like a completely ludicrous thing to do, but it's worked okay well for me so far. I have a, like a separate YouTube channel. I have a separate Twitter feed. I have a separate uh, Instagram account where I follow very specific things and I only watch videos that are in line with things that I want to learn. And the algorithms that they use are pretty good on those platforms and they keep recommending me things that are in line with what I want to learn. Like if you're using these platforms and algorithms in a way that it's like designed to recommend you things that you might be interested in, that's a very effective way to use them for learning and picking up new things. Uh, I mean, there are obviously downsides of that. Like maybe it's an echo chamber for, for what I'm seeing on YouTube or something along those lines, but it, I am inherently lazy in the in the search for for that type of knowledge and setting up systems or using existing smart systems that are in place to to feed me information that I'm likely going to be interested in or could be cutting edge or whatever it might be is something that I found is a little bit of like a a mind hack a life hack so I don't have to you know do what everyone is describing uh, in terms of that like overwhelming uh like volume of things out there to pursue so again, I don't know if that'll help anyone, but it has been pretty interesting for me. And I think fairly effective to set it up like that. And thank you so much. So apparently Kenji has a Finsta. So let's go and try to find that 
that fence that I can has uh, Mikiko go for it. Then after Mikiko, we'll go to Nick. Then after Nick, we'll go to Joe. And then Ashen, you got a great comment. I would love for you to uh, to to unleash that comment from the uh, comment box and and read it out for us. Mikiko, great go for coming it. in with the uh, cultural references, timely yes. cultural references. Dude, don't, um, don't don't let the gray hairs fool you. I'm still I'm still hip to the streets. Um, it's funny. The, the I feel like the learning the like how does what is the best way for one to learn given their sort of career goals um like i've been having some of these discussions like at work because what i've noticed is that on the team that i'm I'm on we have like a really wide variety of skills that we can contribute to solving some really interesting challenges so you know we have staff senior non-senior like ml engineers and some people tend to aside from having a deep number of years of experience uh, some people prefer to work on more, for example, technical tooling projects, whereas other people prefer the more sort of process oriented, you know, like, let's just get, let's get the balls to production. Uh, let's, you know, interface with the model monitoring team. Let's, you know, interface with data engineering. Whereas other people are like, hey, we want to build internally to- internal tooling to help facilitate that. And so, you know, I was having this conversation with my director um, because I'm like, I, 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 I kind of want to figure out what my next steps are. And she said that, you know, back when she was over at Under Armour, um, the way they kind of thought about their careers and consequently learning was uh, three personas. Um, You know, one was the like technical specialist persona. The second persona was like the tech lead. Um, And the third persona was the technical strategist. Um, You know, because I was saying to her, like, I don't know if I have the capacity. I don't don't know if I'm capable of becoming a tech lead, even though I'd really want to do that kind of work. And, you know, she, when she laid that framework out, I thought to me it made the most sense because for the technical specialists, um, and it's not a seniority thing necessarily, it's that some people are very, very much so interested in how do we take existing tooling, how do we architect it, how do we design it, such that we drive business value, whereas other people are much more interested in developing tooling. And, you know, they tend to work more on what's considered like the platform side. So I think part of that, also, you know, what is your sort of career goal? What was the sort of North Star of the kind of work you want to be doing? I feel like that also kind of influences what one's sort of learning pattern would be um, and how they would appreciate, uh, like how they would approach like study, research, et cetera. Like, for example, I don't look at any of the deep learning newsletters anymore because the reality is that most of our data scientists are either like we've set up tooling such that they're either packaging all their models as like libraries that we use internally, or we implement them as like, you know, runtime services, you know, whatever. Um, but the way we sort of interact with models is we look at, you know, uh, code reviews, we look at how they run the tests, we look at how it integrates. Uh, so for me, it's like, there's no benefit in a way to diving really, really deep into any particular technology, but there's a lot of benefit to me understanding the patterns that specific technologies use and how they kind of work with each other. So I, I don't even look at any of the deep learning newsletters or anything, but I keep very much so up to date with like the MLOps community newsletter. Whereas, you know, there are people on the team who are like definitely technical specialists. They're really thinking about like, how do we build this tooling? So they're diving way deep into, you know, like uh, Python bytes or, you know, they're looking at PyCon or whatever. But I look at that too, right? So I think that is something that is kind of really important is that when you're thinking about your learning sort of like mode, is figuring out what you sort of want to get out of it. Um, because if you're a really technical strategist, it 
probably would not benefit one to dive deeply into like everything um, and vice versa. If someone is a technical strategist, it would be good to understand like what's going on the trend, like what are the trends, the patterns, but they might benefit more from reading white papers or research papers off of like algorithmic development or things like that. So. Kiko, thank you so much. Uh, let's go to uh, first, let's, let's hear from Nick and then Ash, and then I'll go to Joe and then Aaron. Uh, again, the topic is, look, man, there's so much out there to learn. Life is the, the, the life is short. The craft is so long. How the hell do you manage all the input? How do you figure out what it is that you should be focusing on in this field of data science? Nick Singh, go for it. What's up? Thanks for having me on. This is my first time hanging out with all you guys. So this is cool. Um, for me, what I do is I intentionally, I'm someone with a bunch of different interests. Um, what I do is I intentionally set like an hour or two in the morning to explore those interests, like scrolling through Twitter, except my Twitter is like filled with a bunch of like product and data and VC and tech Twitter types. So it's like educational. It's not like meme Twitter, but um, I intentionally know that the rest of my day should be like the focused energy time where I'm like working on one thing or learning one specific thing. But that extra like hour or two that I intentionally set off is like my time to like, just like learn about anything and everything. And just like, uh, as I think Ken had mentioned, just like the feed does a pretty good job of like, you know, you tell it like, here are the 50 accounts you want to follow. And then it finds you content from them and related content. So if you just follow a bunch of data, product, VC, and tech people, then you get a lot of good articles around that forever. So that's, that's kind of how I set it up. Yeah. Nick, thank you so much. Um, so let's, uh, let's go to Ash. And before we go to Ash, and shout out to George Farrakhan. George Farrakhan is in the building. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out, man. Um, hey, thank you, Harpreet. Just wanted to wish you a happy anniversary. Congrats on your first year and all the amazing talks and all the amazing content that you're putting out there. So congrats and uh, many more. And the cat says hi. Thank you, George. Thank you. Yeah, I was hanging out with George at the beginning of the month in Vancouver. Um, not only did he did he manage to strategically plant his hair into my dish so that we can get get a, get a discount, he was generous enough to. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> that's not true. No, but the the place we went to was amazing. I, I forgot the name of it, but they took really good care of us. And uh, George was kind enough to give me a ride to the airport afterwards. George, thank you so much. Uh, let's go to Ashen, Ashen, uh, and then after Ashen, Joe and Aaron, and then we got a question coming in from Greg, which we'll move to right after this. And then Ken has a MLOps question, and then Gina has. A as well um go yeah. for it ashen great yeah congratulations on the one year and um yeah happy to be here with everyone uh yeah lots of good points um absolutely like i don't want to repeat uh, everyone's points uh, too much but um one of the, the my comment was on in the chat uh dry you know as as we all know do not repeat yourself but um in this case i do i do encourage you repeating yourself by that i mean um, I found it really helpful to kind of repeat my goals, my learnings to uh, other people. So I'll just grab whoever is willing to listen to me, <laughs> talk about <laughs> everything and um, just, you know, get their feedback, uh, what they think. Um, if they think I'm doing something wrong. I was like, yeah, I'll take that in and uh, kind of loop it in, into my learning. And it's been really, really helpful to have that, uh, have that goal in mind uh, because I thought when I first started, I have to just be a sponge and soak everything in. And that's, that's not the right way to go. I mean, you do get exposed to a lot of fields and you do kind of realize what you like, what you don't like, but it's very uh, stressful. So um, <laughs> always, always uh, repeat yourself, 
uh, remind yourself what you're doing, why you're learning, uh, whatever it is you're learning. And um, uh, yeah, just develop your skills from there. And by the way, my, my, a little bit about me, I uh, just found out about data science in March of 2020. So I'm fair, very, very new to the field. Um, but, you know, do not like I would always suggest to not underestimate the compound effects of your learning. So like within six months, I felt comfortable enough to be here, like, you know, like talk to go to webinars and stuff. And also um, within a year, I was able to learn all these like fancy tools like Snowflake, DBT, HVR and the concepts behind them. So like looking back now, one year, six months even three months, actually, that's plenty of time to learn a new skill and be comfortable with it and be able to talk about it. Action, thank you so much. And congrats on landing that new job. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah congrats <laughs> on, you know, on yeah. how far you've come. I didn't even say that. I mentioned that. Uh, it's been four weeks since my new job as a senior CDP analyst, uh, CDP being customer data platform. Um, and I'm pretty excited to learn. Um, I still don't know, honestly, what I'm doing, but um, I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, uh, excited to learn all those, like, more of a business side, client side side of things. Thank you very much for uh, coming by, Ashen. Uh, also, as uh, Nicole's in the building. Nicole Janeway is here somewhere. Nicole, thank you so much for coming and hanging out. Good to see you as well. She put on an amazing event yesterday. It was a lot of fun. Uh, let's go to Joe and then Aaron, and then we're going to move on to Greg's second question. Then after Greg's question, there's a question from Ken on ML Ops. Then there's a question from Gina, then Costub, and then Lorraine got a question coming in from uh, LinkedIn. Um, yeah, go ahead, Joe. And uh, Actually, this, this, this might be something Aaron and I can talk about together because it's something we were uh, actually on a hike this morning talking about, which was um, at Charnery, for example, uh, I, I think... I've come to realize we do data engineering a lot differently and we think about data engineering a lot differently than probably uh, other people. Um, for people who don't know, we're a data engineering consulting firm and it's like literally all we do all day. Um, but the the context of it is, you know, as we're, as we're trying to get people, um, you know, up to speed for some certifications and stuff, what I realized is there's actually a base level of knowledge that um, needs to be established. Uh, and so... And I've been thinking about this the last few days and how teams really need to, um, I think, set prerequisite knowledge uh, for other people on the team. It's it's something I hadn't thought of, even though I've led teams before. Um, but this is the first time where I, I was like, okay, so uh, the, the baseline technical knowledge that everyone needs to know on a team, whether you're senior or junior, like what, what does that look like? And so, um, you know, that, that's something I've been really... Uh, thinking about lately. I don't know, Aaron, do you have any comments on that or other thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. This has come up. Um, there's that prerequisite knowledge of you're studying Snowflake, you're studying Fireball, you're studying BigQuery, but you don't know what column or databases are. You should probably know what column or databases are. You're studying deep learning, but you've never done logistic regression. You've never done like PCA or any of the basics, there's no replacement for that, that junior statistics class and that junior algorithms and data structures class. You know, I, you were telling me about, you know, uh, I was getting into column family databases with, with Makiko or maybe it wasn't Makiko, someone else we were talking about big table. And then it led us to B tree indexing. And then, and I'm trying to explain it to someone and, you know, how fast writes happen and it's a linked list. And they're like, what's a linked list? And I'm like, well, you got to go to that basic 
algorithms and data structures class that that if you didn't take in college, just go just go snatch one up on Udemy, you know what I mean, or something. But I'm not saying everyone should do that. But and the, the thing I was going to add, and it was going to be real short, is I need to really since since I learned for a living almost, and Joe's and Matt are kind of my boss. I got to treat my learning like an agile process. You know what I mean? Like, and I got to really check my intention of learning. Am I trying to learn about GANs or like deep learning or something? So I could like come to this data science podcast and like show off like how mathematically literate I am and how cool I am. Or like, do I need to learn this snowflake implementation because Joe expects me to implement it like next week. And that's like, you know, I, I, I think I, I, for me, it's, it's come down to my attention. Like, am I learning something so I can signal it? Or am I learning something because I actually need to like deploy it and like create value for a team and for people, you know? That's uh, that's clutch advice. Aaron, thank you so much. And uh, Aaron uh, also has once opened for the Wu-Tang Clan. So <laughs> uh, I don't know where that came from. But it's <laughs> I put that on there. I did, did you open it up? <laughs> Oh, you um, open up for all the uh, ghost face dinner, buddy. <laughs> Anyways, fun times. Yeah. So well, thank you. Yeah, that, that's clutch advice. Thank you so much. Uh, let's uh, let's keep it moving. We got Greg's question. Then after Greg, we got uh, Ken and then Gina, then Costa. And then if you're need office hours, this is typically how it goes, man. We'll we'll just we'll just answer a question until that question is no longer a question anymore, uh, and it's just a settled fact. So, uh, Greg, let's go for it. Yeah, my question is about software engineers. Um, do you guys think there should be a push for that software engineers should learn more and more about machine learning? Um, and if so, uh, what happens to ML engineers? Or what do, you, what do you guys see there? Because, you know, maybe pushing things to production, integrating with uh, business production systems, you know, if it's a, if it's a challenge, uh, what what kind of transformation are we seeing going forward with regards to software engineers? Go to uh, Nick for this. Nick, you got any uh, insight here for this, man? Love to hear from you on this. And then after Nick, we'll go to Mikiko. And then uh, if anybody else wants to chime in on this question, just go ahead and raise your hand, add yourself to the queue. But we'll go Nick, then Mikiko. Hey, this is embarrassing. Can you rephrase the question? Sorry. React. So it's, it's about the uh, software engineers. Should there yeah. be a push for them to learn about machine learning? So they can become more efficient or more effective with working with data scientists. Uh, if so, what happens to the ML engineers uh, in that space? Um, how is that transform? What are you seeing? Honestly, I think like maybe not push them to learn ML, but maybe just push them to do more data engineering, right? Like that's that's something people don't love to do, and um, that could yield better results. Just because let the ML people do the ML. And honestly, engineers, like you don't have to go all the way to ML, just let them get better at data and make sure the ML people have the space to do their ML stuff on top of good data and good pipelines and good tooling. So I'd say that as one thing, but then my other answer would be like, maybe a little bit, I guess. I'm a big fan of like cross-training. Again, I was alluding to how like my Twitter feed is just like product, VC, tech, and data. It's not even just one thing. And I'm, you know, I just always think that Getting projects out the door is often about solving technical challenges, but it's also about working with people. And one, one of the biggest things with working with people is being able to speak someone's language, right? So we're all speaking English, but often, you know, a PM is talking one way and then an engineer is thinking about something totally different. 
And uh, one best way to get everyone on the same page is like, well, what's the Rosetta Stone? Like, how do we get everyone talking on the same page? It's like, make sure your people know something about the other person's job, what their field's about and what they're like optimizing for. Because that's when I was at Facebook, one of the biggest things would be like engineers are optimizing for one thing and they're being graded on one thing. PMs are being graded on another and designers are being graded on a third thing. So designers here pushing me to make it look pretty. The PM is trying to just up a number. That's all their bonus is tied to, a single number. And then engineers are trying to improve perf, which might not tie to numbers. And suddenly we're all talking different ways because we just don't know how each other acts. So I guess in that sense, it's good to cross-train. But I mean, you know, software engineer doesn't want to do ML. And, you know, don't, don't, you know, just do whatever interests you. But I think learning about data is always a good thing. Uh, data engineering, sorry, data engineering would be like a good middle ground. Nick, thanks so much. By the way, Nick's got a book out. Y'all should check it out. There's a link right there in the comment. Ace the Data Science interview. Uh, we'll be talking about this in the podcast at some point, probably November or something like that. Looking forward to that, Nick. Um, let's go to uh, let's go oh, to a quick yeah. quick thing. It's forty four dollars in Canadian dollars, so oh, it's like yes. thirty thirty two in a U.S. dollar. So I just want to call that out. <laughs> this this is this is Canada. Yes, uh, things are more expensive here, uh, but salaries are oddly not. Um, uh, Bikiko, go for it. Yeah, so I think, um, so there's kind of like three layers for which that question could operate. Uh, the first one is just, should anyone learn? So, so what should anyone know about ML? And should people know stuff about ML? And I think they should at a high level, just because if you are a consumer of any sort of platform or product, it, there's a really good chance that it uses some kind of ML modeling. Um, and as a as a well-informed member of society who uses something like Facebook or Amazon, you should probably have an, have some kind of high-level understanding of like how are they, like how are recommendations being recommended to you, and that's very helpful. For example, if you are like a person of color and you're trying to get like a home loan, you should probably be able to understand like first off, uh, not necessarily how is the company generating like the the credit score or the prediction or or the loan mortgage interest. But uh, what are the ways that they could be generating it for you that could be adverse to you, for example? And we've seen this in like the real in, in real estate tech, right? A couple of companies have recently gone into trouble because you know they were um, they were providing predictions on um, like the the mortgage interest, right? And they were using socioeconomic uh, status or wealth um, and also your neighborhood index which unfortunately has been correlated with uh, redlining policies in the past, right? So there are just things that you as a member of society should, should know. So at that level, um, it doesn't have to be the particulars, but it should be like, what are the pros and cons and like, how are companies leveraging it, right? Um, and where does your data kind of fit in? Um, the second level is like, as, you know, as an engineer, would it probably be good for you to know? Yes, definitely. Um, but do you need to know do you need to, for example, be able to describe the implementation of an algorithm? Um, probably not. Like what you should be able to understand once again is high level, like, you know, data goes in, data goes out. What are some of the problems that can result from data um, and from model predictions? And, you know, how, what are the challenges around it? But I don't think it's like 100% necessary. Um, and in terms of like kind of where the trends are going, a, a lot of roles have just been specializing um, in, in companies that are big enough. You don't, in fact, like in a big company, you in fact do not have someone who is truly doing end to end. They are not, uh, you know, gathering the data. They're not, 
you know, they're not cleaning it. They're not um, putting it in a data warehouse or data mesh or whatever. They're not generating the model. They're not then pushing it to production. They're not also doing like observability and monitoring and experimentation and doing all the stuff. In big companies, you just do not see individuals having that kind of role um, because it is just very, very hard to do all that very well in a way that won't get the company sued. Um, because if you are a big enough company, you probably have international customers, you probably have GDPR, all this other stuff. So um, so the net net is that I totally agree with Nick's point is that you should probably like understand first off the high level concepts, like where's it fitting in the product, you know, where where's it fitting as a user. It's probably a lot more interesting to like focus as an engineer on the data challenges. Um, and there's a bunch of people on this call who can talk about that, but a lot of the challenges that come up with ML engineers are in many ways data challenges. They're not really ML challenges, right? Um, or they're challenges of the dev versus like prod, you know, environments and the different uh, needs of like the dev versus the prod environment. Um, so, you know, and as a as an ML engineer, um, I'm not super worried, honestly, about, you know, if people suddenly figure out a lot of those challenges, will I suddenly go out a job? Probably not. Because um, the reality is that like, if you're in a space like data engineering, ML engineering, ML ops, um, you can take those skills and build them and you can just sort of decide to either specialize in an area or you can move into an area that, uh, you know, really kind of values having that sort of more holistic uh, palette of skills. Um, but, you know, um, I, I think Joe and Aaron can talk about how like hot data engineering is getting and like how important it is. Um, because once again, like a lot of the challenges that we see in MLOps and MLNG, to some degree, they're challenges that have frankly already been solved in other areas like DevOps, or they are challenges that are really more related to like data or things that are a little bit more fundamental. So. Eco, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Just reminds me, I was, uh, I was on a call earlier today. I was talking to Dimitros Brinkman. He's the uh, head of community at the MLOps oh. community. Uh, if you guys haven't, uh, if you guys haven't joined that community, you should join. It's pretty active. But I was talking to him and he he said something funny. He was like, bad things happen to good data. And uh, he's going to make a shirt out of that. So if, you know, if, if you get a shirt that's not from him, that means somebody listened to us talk and, uh, and, and bit that idea. But bad things happen to good data. Um, yeah, just remind me of that uh, as Mikiko was talking. Let's go to Aaron. Then after Aaron, um, uh, Mark, let's go to, let's go to, let's go to uh, Mark after Aaron. Well, I've kind of had a common theme of opportunity cost. Um, if you have a principal engineer at your company, let's say you're an e-commerce company and, and, and you have a principal software developer that's a spring boot genius and all these things, probably not the best you know, company time to train them up in ML. Um, I think with Makiko talking about the ethical outputs of ML, uh, you could, you know, it's that the algorithmic Avengers and those kinds of like groups you can read. I think that's, that's important stuff, but I'm going to just tell you a horror story about when someone does start thinking that they know ML and, you know, we had, we, we, uh, I, I, I did product management for about a year and I'll, I'll never do that again. Um, and one of the reasons why was because I understood models and I could, I could talk. So they're like, well, why don't you be a product manager in data science? And it was really ill-defined. And a lot of my job was teaching the business ML and teaching developers ML. And, uh, you know, we, we had a search algorithm. We were using LTR and um, we had some variation of that. And then once a few people learn about ML, 
we had a laundry list of like feature requests that people wanted to see put in our models and uh, started getting a lot of like, there's nothing more dangerous than like a really good engineer that's been studying ML for two weeks and uh, played with Jupyter Notebook and then wants you to like make all these changes to your model because they're an engineer for 20 years and, and telling me that I should add the discount to the model when we have the lowest paid price in the model and then trying to explain to them of multicollinearity and things like that. So, you know, there's a cost um, either way. And I just, I, I, I think that that's something you want to think about. If you teach everyone uh, about ML, be prepared for everyone to have an opinion on the model that you have in production. And I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but that's- Well, I mean, it's kind of like- it's kind of like a front end developers expected everybody in the company touches a keyboard to know react or something. Right. It's like, I guess, um, but I don't know, man, there's a lot of specialization. I think it's kind of funny. I actually see almost the reverse happening where there's sort of a, I think ML is still hot, but it was, it's not like it was back in the day where it's like, everybody needs to learn to code and, and learn ML, even if you're like two years old or something. Um, nowadays, it definitely seems like, I think now that the uh, sort of the, um, you know, the, the enamors wore off the, uh, of, uh, you know, ML in some, some degree, uh, people are a lot more realistic about what you can and shouldn't use it for. So I think that's cool. And the nice thing is we're getting back to basics again, right? I think a lot of the hype sort of worn off. Um, so it's cool. Whether, whether or not you learn to code, you should at least learn how systems work option, you know, how they operate, how they function. Uh, let's go to Mark. Then after Mark, we're going to shift gears, go into Ken's question. And after Ken, we got Gina Costa and then Lorraine's question coming in from LinkedIn. And I think after those questions, man, it might be time to, to, to call it a wrap. Uh, but go for it. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to speak, but I put a comment in the, in the chat. Um, kind of an interesting use because I'm in startup. So I move really fast. And many times they're like, well, no one else is going to do it, so you do it. And so... Many times I'm the one sourcing the data, putting it into our database, setting up our data warehouse, and then like building solutions on top of that, and then putting into production. And the thing is though, like that seems end to end, but like it's end to end light to me because I'm like, if if we're doing this like this large scale production thing, like am, am I capable of doing that all really well? I don't think so. It's the fact that we're in a startup and I can get away with V1s and put it out really quick that that allows that and so the question is like am i really doing end-to-end -end data science if it's actually just kind of like a, a v1 to make sure the market even wants it and so it's more so of a um maybe a philosophical question like what's end-to-end -end? what considers you an end-to-end -end or unicorn data scientist because some people made the argument that the stuff i'm doing is but for me personally i'm just kind of like if you knew kind of how it works it feels a little hacky <laughs> Mark, thank you so much. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Greg, hopefully you got some great insights onto that question. Let's go ahead and uh, we're going to go to Ken's question. Guys, I'm going to step away for a second because this, this beer is running low and I feel like we're about to keep, you know, we're going for a while. So I've got to go grab me another beer. But for uh, Ken's question, we'll go to uh, we'll go to Mark, then we'll go to Makiko, and then we'll go to Nick on, on Ken's question. Uh, Ken, go for it. Sure. I think you should be actually drinking champagne today for the one-year anniversary. I think you botched it. but. Um, this is actually a, a brute IPA. Oh, there so you I, go. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so I sat down 
to make a video about what is MLOps the other day. And I, I read a lot of articles. I believe I, I know what MLOps is, but I couldn't define it very clearly in a couple sentences. I think that there are a lot of components that go into it. And I was wondering if anyone had a good definition for MLOps, perhaps something that a child could understand or some or, or I could understand. Um, or it could be like, or if you could define it in like a, like a tweet form or something like that, that was, uh, that is the challenge or the question that I would pose. Definitely. So I'll, I'll go first. Cause I was on that list of things. So, um, actually one of my, my clients for my, my side business is, uh, actually writing blog articles on ML ops and, uh, not necessarily like the, how they implement it, but more so on like the decision maker side of like build versus buy and like why you should consider these solutions. So it's been really top of mind of like, how do I communicate ML ops and the, and the various vendors in the space specifically for, uh, um, for like buyers. So like, I think the, the definition that we've been going around is essentially is like ML ops and someone who's way more experienced, please correct me if I'm wrong, because then I can write better articles. But um, essentially ML ops is the ability to take your machine learning model into production and one make it reliable and scalable um, through through various processes and tools. And so uh, that's kind of the definition we're we're going around. And the key thing around that is that and I talked about this a little bit earlier is that you know for for ML ops the relatively new space and it's going through hyper fast. And so I think of it kind of like the data maturity cycle where um, not data maturity cycle the um, the maturity cycle where initially you have a whole bunch of like different players. And over time, it consol uh, consolidates. So we're like really early in that. So no one's really figured out how to do it end to end. So now you have all these piecemeal um, individuals saying for this for this kind of process of going from like data ingestion to um, you know data exploration, business use case to Jupyter notebooks, and experimenting to actually putting in production and the monitoring and, and that cycle going back and forth. There's various players who are really good, and you kind of bring those all together. Um, for for ML ops solutions, so the ML ops engineers are the ones who are able to really think through. Um, you know, there's a lot of overlap between ML engineers and ML ops currently, and so um, Mikiko does ML engineering, and she had this really great article that they do. Um, and so the ML ops more so like less of the all right, um, how I build a model versus all right, we have this model built, how we make sure it really works for our customers at scale every single time we can deploy, it, and if it needs to get retrained. How can we deploy again really fast? And so that's the current thought process around it. Um, but I'm, I'm super excited to hear what other people think because this will help me in my job immensely. I have a kind of a follow-up question to that. So for example, with like DevOps, which I believe MLOps is like loosely based on, um, a huge component of that was handoff between uh, like software engineers and business people and implementation or whatever it might be. How is that baked into the system that you described? Definitely. So, like, I think for one of the articles I recently wrote, it was like they're they're specifically talking about this use case where they they have models and the the challenge that um what that that they described the vendor described was essentially like um typically in software engineering you're managing just a code base, but when it comes to ML engineering, you're managing a code base and a database. And that adds significant complexity to that process because your code base is, is changing, but then also your database, the data, data quality can be degrading if someone adds like a random value or whatnot to it. 
Um, and so because of that complexity, um, ML ops helps align on that. And so that's the explanation I was given, but I'm really curious, like, especially like, I feel like Joe would have a really great idea on this, uh, space, um, simply because well, of how the I data mean, engineering. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the ops is ops, like we call it X ops, uh, cause ML, DevOps, data ops, whatever. Um, what did I see the other day? Data prep ops. That was one that somebody said they trademarked. I thought that was hilarious. Um, I talked to a guy last week who uh, came up with the term DevSecOps. But really, what, what, when you have the word ops, I mean, the thing that you need to realize is, okay, if you look back to the origin of DevOps, um, it, it really took its inspiration from uh, Lean, right? So if you know what Lean is, uh, it's a system of basically, and it's a pretty low fidelity system, honestly, with the way Toyota developed it, it was like, um, uh, don't rely on overly complicated systems. That's actually a tenant of lead. You want to, you want to, but it, the end goal is to reduce error and, and variation and defects, um, reduce uh, lead times and that sort of thing, right? So if you apply those principles to DevOps, for example, right? That means you're automating code deployments, uh, reducing defects in your application, i.e. bugs and so forth. Um, when you think about data ops, right? You extend this a bit further, I'm going down the food chain. So you, now, now you're data, which means you're going to reduce uh, defects in data. Right, data quality issues, data governance issues, uh, compliance issues, and so forth. Right, the idea is to get data into the hands of end users as quickly as possible. Now, of course, this brings us to machine learning ops, right? And so, and here's sort of the order of operations, right? You have to have functioning applications, you have to have good data in order to do the machine learning, which relies upon these inputs. And so, machine learning ops essentially takes the same um, notion. That, remember what I said, ops. The essence of ops is to reduce variation, defects, time to value, and so forth. So all you're doing in machine learning ops is exactly that. You're applying these same principles to productionizing machine learning models. That means machine learning models, you're able to capture concept data drift quickly. You're observing uh, defects in your predictions, and you're, you're, you're improving the cycle of your retraining. So to, to, to wrap it up, I would say, when you're thinking, when you see the word ops, always think in terms of, I'm trying to speed things up while eliminating defects in my workflow. And that's about it, right? Um, I would encourage you to actually look at the, uh, learn about, there's a really good book called The Toyota Way um, that covers how Toyota um, developed its lean practices uh, back in the day. Before lean, there was like total quality management and all these other kind of like super complicated ways of, of reducing factory errors and manufacturing errors. Toyota comes along um, and they're like, okay, um, we're just going to look at the uh, the production line and notice how quickly things move through the production line without defects. And they had things like the, the add-on cord. So if you just pull a cord, there's a defect. The entire production line stops. This is completely different than uh, how things used to be, where you just you know have a production line and never stop the line. That was that was horrific. Like why would you ever stop a line? Like that would that, that's that's heresy. Um, and so just a lot of a lot of I would say contrarian thinking that actually. It's interesting, you know, because this is we're talking about manufacturing, which is like doesn't seem like it would have any application to software at all, but it has everything to do with software. Because at the end of the day, software is nothing but uh, pipelines and workflows. That's it. So uh, that's my TED talk. Thanks. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, let's go to uh, Mickey, Nick. If Nick want to chime in here, then we'll go to Greg. Uh, go for it. Yeah, I mean, the way I've always just kind of summarized it, it's the discipline of basically delivering, oh, 
sorry, am I unmuted or am I? No, no, you're good. Oh, okay. Um, it's the discipline of delivering like ML products that scale, resilient, uh, scalable, all that good stuff. But I do kind of wonder if they're basically like, it's kind of like programming languages or like classes, right? Like you can have sort of this idea of what something, this aspirational idea of what something should be. And then, you know, you see like, for example, like a dog. And then you see how this dog class is implemented very differently across many, many different programs. And I kind of wonder if that's kind of one of the things we're running up against, like in the ML ops, MLN space, um, in that like the way ML ops and MLN is done at big companies is different at smaller companies and startups, right? Like before MailChimp I was at the startup where we did like everything, including data and ML. So I was an ML engineer there, but this could be one of those cases where just because with startups, the resources were so, so constrained that having any kind of specific title would have been sort of, I, I don't want to say like a lie, but maybe it would not have been quite super accurate the way that, for example, ML, ML ops is, or, or data ops or MLN just performed at bigger companies, right? Because at bigger companies, um, so I'd say like my team, to be honest, is probably a little bit more closer to ML ops. Uh, for one thing, I'm, debugging Kubernetes and Jenkins right now. Um, I imagine there's very little like, eh, <laughs> I know everyone like winced at that. Um, there's very little data science or algorithmic. It's just figuring out how the builds are done and how we can run tests for a Docker within a Docker system thing. Anyway, but, um, you know, like we don't at all touch the data because we have a data engineering team who, you know, has the, sets up the infrastructure, like sets up the DAGs, like monitors the data quality. Like we don't do anything with data, we're the, but we're essentially like one of the practical interfaces between like the data scientists who operate sort of in a dev environment and data services or data engineering, um, as well as at times product, you know? So, you know, it's interesting because I feel like this is one of those areas where like everyone could kind of, kind of come up with their own sort of like catch line or catchphrase, and it'll probably be wrong depending on like the size or it'll be only loosely relevant depending on the size of the company and sort of the maturity of that company. Um, because if you're an, if you're a company that's not very mature, um, small startup, um, then your big focus would be probably more on the data engineering side. And you would just build sort of like simple models that you could just even run the predictions and have them like surfaced in some kind of batch, like, you know, pre-cached sort of deal. Whereas in a bigger company, you are sort of concerned because you're treating all these ML products and your people as kind of assets that do need to be managed. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that would be my sort of line would be like, it's just the dis discipline of delivering like ML products and doing them well. But, but, you know, for some companies like a startup, the ML versus the data product, there might not actually be this very clean sort of um, line between what's a data product versus what's an ML product versus what's just even having the product to begin with. Um, Thank you very much, uh, Miki. Let's go to Greg. Then after Greg, we're going to move into Gina's question. Then there's a question from Kosteb, then Lorraine on LinkedIn, and then we'll go ahead and we'll call it a wrap after that. Um, Greg, go for it. Oh, I'm, uh, I, I just have the, the probably the most non-technical answer here, but uh, Joe was actually speaking my language. Uh, if you go deep into the history of, of DevOps, it, it, it's built on top of lean, uh, lean concepts. Um, the Toyota way is definitely uh, something that will uh, open up your eyes to this. Um, you will learn the concept of just-in-time. You'll learn the concept of reducing uh, variations. 
down the production line. So I see MLOps uh, as a framework. Uh, you're in the manufacturing side, you have production lines, you're trying to uh, reduce uh, variability, you're trying to ensure reliability, you're trying to ensure efficiency. Therefore, you put this framework called MLOps so you can keep up with the demand. So if you think about your ML models, those are the supplies that you're pushing out to production to meet the demand of the business use cases. So uh, with that, you have to find a way to constantly deliver them to these business needs so they can uh, be addressed the right way. And the only way to find out whether you're delivering re reliability and with efficiency is to be able to uh, measure that, right? So that's where you have the uh, monitoring concept drifts, uh, data drifts, et cetera. So you can make sure you're tapping into uh, that reliability, right? Because people will ask you questions. That model that I've just purchased from you to meet my business demand, is it reliable? Is it uh, 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 good for my use case? Does it respond uh, to my need? And for that, you have to have those uh, kind of processes. So it's all about repeatability, uh, reproduce, uh, reproducibility, and things like that. Uh, to me, it's like coming into a car manufacturing site and doing things consistently and where you're reducing your time to deployment uh, through these uh, uh, practices. And uh, there's a lot to learn from DevOps, but also there's even more to learn from the lean practices as well. Uh, this gets me excited because I'm an industry engineer and uh, I've started in the lean systems. And uh, that was a great question. I appreciate that. Greg, thank you. Ken, how do you feel about those responses? Feeling good about that? Yeah, those are great. Thank you, everyone. Uh, so I'm going to drop a link right here to the ML Ops community in the chat. Uh, uh, join that, Ken, if, if, uh, if you'd like. There's a lot of good activity there, uh, a lot of great conversations um you know i'm just learning a lot looking at the questions people are asking are you gonna get demetrios on your podcast uh we were talking about getting something going uh getting cool. something going yeah definitely he's a homie. yeah he's cool man demetrios a cool cool guy um let's go to um let's go to uh gina's question and after gina we'll go to coast up and then lorraine on linkedin so i'll read lorraine's question gina are you still here you hi still all hi hi um can you guys hear me okay yep loud and clear Excellent. Um, so yeah, first time joining this group, I learned about uh, Harpreet and uh, this happy hour from Super Data Science Podcast. And so that was very cool. And then I live in Davis, California, which is really close to Sacramento, which is where Harpreet is from originally. So that was pretty sweet. Um, and I really enjoyed that podcast and just <laughs> go Aggie, says Mark. Yeah. Mark nice. went to Davis as well. What? Cool. Um, we'll have to catch up. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep this short first time person. I want to give a little context. So this is a job search question. Please, everybody don't tune out or, you know, <laughs> job search questions be so tough. So, um, yeah. background, I have, um, I have three degrees, so I'm okay with degrees, um, biology, environmental studies, MBA. Uh, I am mid-career. And so doing a career pivot, I've always been into analytical work and as data science tools, as I became more and more aware of data science tools uh, coming up and up as compute power has grown uh, so quickly and storage has become cheap. Um, I started following this some years ago and then decided to quit my job uh, and actually do a boot camp. And so I really liked that. Um, there were some some issues earlier on, let's just say, um, but on the whole, it's been very, very good. Um, I 
because I hadn't really taken any vacations in a long time, I had, you know, I realized after I started the boot camp, I was really burnt out. So I've kind of taken my time as I've gone along in this. And I really want to, I want my next move to be meaningful. I want to, you know, not just take the first thing that comes along. Having said that, as a boot camp grad, you know, I've basically got my boot camp projects and I want to do some other projects, but it's almost like I'm in this weird spot of I'm willing to do just about anything, but I don't necessarily want to do it just about anywhere. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, and so, so there's a, a challenge there of there are lots of data science jobs out there, obviously. Um, so focus is important. I'm, you know, struggling with that a little bit. And of course, there's the whole, you know, every PD has a long wish list. And how do you know which ones are for real and which, I mean, you can kind of tell sometimes, I can read between the lines sometimes and see which ones are like, okay, HR is just kind of putting everything in the kitchen sink in there versus, okay, this is kind of legit. Like they really need somebody who has five years of NLP experience, um, you know, could be a challenge to find, but I'm sure I know those people are out there. Um, so my question is, my question is, one is just around, you know, how best to use my time. And yes, networking is important and LinkedIn is a very useful tool, et cetera. Um, the second piece kind of, someone was mentioning soft skills earlier and um, in the chat, and that's um, really important. And I think I bring those to the table as well as years and years of experience. So some people have suggested to me, oh, you could be like kind of a, a, a team manager type person. And that might be good because I've done a lot of analytical work and I've worked in consulting. I've worked in a, a range of different environments and that experience brings some context and also allows me to talk to many different people. So someone was also talking about that earlier, being able to communicate with folks across different areas um, in, in the company. Um, so I, I guess another big question though is, I mean, if you can put on your resume, I'm an excellent writer, or I'm a great communicator, and like talk is cheap. And I've seen, I mean, and just as an aside, I consider myself a very good writer and just very persnickety about language and punctuation and grammar and all the rest. And I worked with a guy who's a terrible writer and on his resume, excellent writer. It's like, oh, come on, give me a break. So you can only, you know, communicate so much on that resume. And so I would love, I know this is kind of a, you know, kind of a little bit of a data dump about me and, and, you know, where I'm at in my job search, but I would so love to hear folks's, um, you know, comments on this and advice. Thank you in advance. Yeah, so you got, you got a good lineup of people uh, here to, to help answer. We're going to go, we're going to start off with Nick, Nick, who is a career coach, best-selling author extraordinaire. Then after Nick, we are going to go to Nicole Janeway Bills, then Vivian, then Makiko, then Greg, then Mark, then Ken, you're going to get a lot of good advice. So uh, if you are not taking notes already, do not fear because the Artist of Data Science podcast is all transcribed. It's all recorded. It will be released on Sunday. Uh, and you can download the chat um, right here in the, um, in, in, the, in the chat box here. Also, shout out to Kate Strachany, who has just joined. Kate, my friend, good to see your living room or whatever it is that you're showing us. It's a nice living room. Uh, <laughs> Kate, uh, let's go to, uh, yeah, let's start off with Nick, then Nicole Janeway, and then Vivian, then Makiko, then Greg, then Mark, then Ken. 
Yeah, just for the sake of brevity, I know there's a bunch of different things you told us about. I think a few ideas I'm going to latch on to. Um, and you can always just DM me on LinkedIn or something if you just need more help. But um, build portfolio projects. That's probably my one big advice, right? You had mentioned something about, oh, like you had some projects. I quickly looked at your GitHub. Um, we can talk about that. But I think that there's, you know, building more is never a bad thing. And um, especially, you know, you're, you're saying you're maybe having some challenges finding a job, but you've worked in consulting, you've done a few other things. Is there a stepping stone job, like a job that's like in that industry that's more data driven? So honestly, you being a great writer, it's great. But like, honestly, you pay to write code and that's that's the end of it. And, I, and I'm someone who struggles with that too. And that's why I have so many interests and, you know, I'm not a good fit for industry and it's all because of that. But anyways, see if there's a job that's sort of in your industry that could be easier to step in stone, step in, step into and use that as a stepping stone and then build more projects. I think that's never a bad thing. And then as people mentioned, like burnout's real, like take care of yourself. But like if your version of like goofing off and taking time for yourself is building projects you're interested in, that's not a very bad way of spending your time. That's like awesome. So that's my like quick pitch, but you know, feel free to DM me because I know there's a lot going on. Nick, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Nicole, then after Nicole, Vivian, Nikiko, then Greg, then Mark, then Ken. Nicole? Oh man, yeah, that was great advice. And that's tough to follow. So uh, I guess I'll just say like uh, echo everything that Nick said and yeah. also add, um, you know, in terms of exciting projects to you, um, one thing that you might consider is checking out the local data portal. And I think one of the benefits to that is if you're looking for a job in your area, um, and this is kind of changed since our lives are a lot remote right now. But, um, but yeah, like pretty much, you know, when you're having these conversations with people who you meet in real life, uh, real throwback there. But, um, you know, they'll be curious about the results of your model and how that impacts them. And they'll want to hear like, oh, yeah, well, what about my neighborhood? You know, what about the neighborhood that I grew up in? So that's like a successful um, one strategy that, that I have used that I have just found a lot of people get excited about. Um, and then another benefit to that is there's a lot of organizations that are hyper local and are just like looking for contractors. And they, they might be willing to even compensate you. And you can pair your data science skills with your, you know, your writing and, and be able to leverage both. And even like, I mean, you're not going to make like a, you know, a winning like thing salary uh, writing for like a local think tank or a um, like a policy council or something like that. But like, you know, those those roles are out there and some of them are are complicated, which which is fun. Um, so so look, look for opportunities like that, because it, it those I mean, having projects in your resume and your GitHub valuable, but having projects like, you know, with front ends online, like that's really cool. So if you can plug into an existing team that's looking for contractors, like that could be great. You can also act, offer contracting services. Um, you know, in other places too. So just a thought and some potential things to like get your wheels turning in terms of how to expand and not just be job searching. And then one final thing I just wanted to share with you is like, you know, just because someone tells you you might be a good fit for a job, like 
don't settle. Like, if that's not what you see yourself doing long term, like, yeah, there's a difference between saying, okay, I'm going to take a job for a confined period of time because I know it'll be the next step versus like getting stuck in a role because someone's like, oh, you have these skills, but if they're not energizing to you and they don't leverage your technical abilities that you're, you know, your real hard skills that you are, you know, hard earned, especially as a career pivoter, like I know how hard that is. So um, yeah, just don't settle. That's, that'll be my including it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so, so much. Um, by the way, Nicole, if you want to leave a link in the chat for the amazing study guys that you have created for the CDMP exam, that would be awesome. Go ahead and, and drop that link. Also, um, everybody watching on LinkedIn, go ahead and smash that like button on LinkedIn. I see you guys. None of you guys have smashed the like. Also, Kate Scratch needs in the building. If you guys have not yet already, you must go and register for the dedicated conference yours truly will be there presenting. I know Greg is going to be presenting. I know Joe, I believe, is going to be presenting. Uh, a, lot, a lot of us are going to be out there. Uh, I'll be talking about um, strategic aspects of ML Ops. Kate, thank you once again for putting on another amazing dedicated conference. Um, I might I might just start doing my own conference next year too. Just, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, let's go to, uh, let's go to Vivian, then Mikiko, then Greg, then Mark, then Ken. Uh, you get, like I said, um, you know, you got a lot of advice coming your way. Don't worry. This is all transcribed and it will be um, on on the podcast for you to take. Vivian, are you still here? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Sorry. I just was letting you finish. Um, so I just feel like there's so many things I could say. So I'll just try to stick to a few things. Um, for one, I just want you to, uh, it sounded like when you were talking that you're kind of like, thinking about what is important to you. Like when you were saying like, Oh, I'll take like any job, but maybe the company is like more important to me or like the culture or something like that. And like, I think that's a really good place to start and to be like that, that like, cause when I was, so I also did a boot camp and I was a career transitioner and I was very much like got to a place as I was interviewing and stuff where I realized like, well, I don't super want to be like the culture matters a lot to me more than job title, maybe necessarily even because like, I didn't want to be treated like a robot. Like I didn't want to just be treated like a coding robot or something. Like I wanted to be someone who got to actually use like some of my decision-making skills, especially like as a career pivoter and having some like other experiences, I felt like it brought like, like there are companies that value people who have a wealth of experience because they bring unique perspectives to the table and that's like something they want they want people with varied experience and stuff so like know that those companies exist and like search for those companies and like it may be difficult to feel like how do i find them though so like just pay attention to like i don't know the kind of wording that they use in the in the uh job description also like when you're being interviewed, you know, pay attention to like the methods they use when interviewing you. Like, well, so I work at Facebook. I got a job at Facebook and like something that just made me like want that job even more. Like I was like, oh my God, I got to have this job was because after every interview, the interviews were always very much like thinking, just thinking through problems. It wasn't about like, like, sure. There was a little bit of like coding and stuff just to see if I wasn't faking it basically. But like a lot of it was like very focused on like seeing how I think as a person and like, am I a good problem solver? Like, am I somebody that could like 
bring fresh perspectives to the table. And that was like something that was like, oh, this is like the ultimate. I want to work here. I want this job, you know, so like pay attention to that sort of thing. Um, Also, when you're applying to jobs, my job coach for the program that I did very much encouraged me to not get too obsessed with like not meeting the requirements on the job postings. And like, this is especially a thing that he had to like talk with me about because like men, for instance, are much more likely to just apply for jobs if they, even if they only meet like 40% of the requirements or something, whereas women tend to like hold themselves back until they meet at least, you know, 80% or something like that. So like, like pretend you're a white man, like ask yourself what a white man would do and then like have that confidence, you know? And (laughs) I guess that, you know, like, like recognize ways where you can like get out of your own way um, and just apply. Because also like, if you don't like something that my job coach talked to me about a lot is he was like, even if you don't like perfectly need it, if they end up liking you, there's a lot of, like, he has seen a lot of people where like, they don't actually meet, you know, what the, like what the job description is asking for, but they liked that person so much that they then just like changed the role to fit that person because they ended up liking them so much. So like, I guess that that's also something that I would bring to your attention, but yeah, like you being a career pivoter, like when I started seeing myself like a career pivoter as a strength, instead of like a weakness or something like, oh, if only I was as experienced as other people or something, like when I saw it, like as my strength, that's when things like really turned for me. Like you have a wealth of knowledge that is unique. That means that you are a unique individual that can be your superpower, you know? Anyway, hope that yeah. helps. <laughs> Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Vivian. Yeah, and that point about <clears throat> career pivoters and just having that kind of outside view, it is crucial. Uh, we need more of that in data science if everybody was just a statistician or just a coder or just a mathematician. Like, we wouldn't have the point of views that we need at the table. I uh, highly recommend checking out this book by um, uh, Epstein uh, called Range. I don't know if you've seen that or not um, or, or watched it or whatever, listen to it watch and talk about it check that book out uh, i think you'll really appreciate that uh we're gonna go to uh mikiko then greg then mark and then um costa and lorraine we're gonna have to table your questions because i gotta get dinner for the family and put the baby to sleep um so we'll go mickey greg then mark then we'll call it a wrap i mean sorry mickey greg mark and then ken then call it a wrap yeah so uh i just have some like specific recommendations um on the networking part uh so for me personally, I found networking to be 100% super useless, regardless of whether or not it was virtual or in person, if I uh, really, if I was trying to network. Um, if it was a group or meetup that I thought was super interesting anyway, that is kind of like having an authentic interest in like what's going on uh, helps more than anything else. Uh, so that's one thing I would say is that like they're... Some people will do this thing where they will just like hit up every Joe, Jane, John, Heap, like on LinkedIn, uh, send a random message. I'm not, I don't believe you would do that necessarily, but I would just say that, you know, sometimes all these, especially these like speed networking events, they can be kind of useless. So I would say like, uh, first figure out kind of like, what are these sort of groups or areas or topics you'd be super interested in um, and kind of filter based off that. Uh, The second sort of recommendation is that, so there are a bunch of different groups that um, I have found for me to be personally very, very useful as both a woman of 
color who is also LGBTQ. Um, and specifically those groups were uh, tech ladies. It, it's a, they have a Facebook group, um, but more importantly, they have a job board uh, for women or non-binary individuals uh, where you can directly connect with the hiring manager. And it's a curated role. They are all roles that specifically, um, they are making it a point to try to recruit from a diverse pipeline, which is really, really nice. And there are a lot of career changes in that group. Um, a lot of stories I've seen are people who, you know, uh, not just for data science machine learning, but they decide they want to do web dev. They picked up a React class like two or three years ago, and they found a lot of great relationships within the tech ladies group. So I would recommend checking them out. Um, another group that could be really great is women in data science. Um, that is a fantastic group. And more importantly, they will host uh, hackathons every year, um, which are typically social cause based. Uh, I think last year was more COVID related for obvious reasons. Um, no, actually it was women is in for uh, uh, mortality in, in emergency clinics. Either, either way, you, you got paired up with random people. I did it. It was fun. Um, I even got paired up with some researchers at Jay Hopkins uh, and Harvard Med for us to do a, a study um, where, you know, we brought our data science and machine learning and coding skills and they brought their domain knowledge and statistical knowledge. And we combined it to try to do a study on social determinants of health. So that's a really, really great example of how you can uh, get a collaboration of people with different skill sets and experiences to produce really valuable, good work. Um, so I would check out Women in Data Science. Uh, two other groups you could take a look at are ML for Good from Delta Analytics. Um, they often have opportunities where you can do projects that are ML for Good based and even Code for America. Um, because, you know, if you're going to be adding sort of portfolio projects, um, especially if you already have a background in certain areas like environmental policy, um, those are areas that could use a lot of great work. Um, my dad, for example, who for years could not run an Excel sheet to save his life, uh, which means our accounting was terrible for the family. Um, so he's he's partnering with people to do a study on um, whale tracking patterns for the Coast Guard Auxiliary, because what they want to understand is all these super boats that are coming in and getting stuck in um, you know, like the canals, um, you know, are they also going to be harming, um, you know, whale migration patterns, which, which has an environmental impact. Once again, this guy could not for the life of him run an Excel sheet. He would have done very poorly in uh, David Langer's classes. Um, you know, so if you're more technical than my father, um, God bless him. Uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to have those kinds of collaborations and have that kind of impact. Um, yeah. So I would check, I would check out those groups. I would definitely um, make sure when you, network, you're really filtering on what you're super interested in um, and really focus on sort of, you know, authentic relationships. Um, yeah. And in terms of the roles, I would, you know, echo people's points, like, don't feel like you have to settle. If you see a job description where it's like, oh man, this would take like four or five people to do, that's probably a red flag, you know? Um, and definitely, definitely like look at the culture and see if they churn and burn their like uh, data science, machine learning, engineering team. Um, because there, that is very real, like in some companies, um, and some startups, um, you know, so yeah. And I'd say good luck. Thank you very much. Pekiko. We're going to go to, uh, Mark and then Ken after that, but just real quick, shout out to Colleen, Eric, uh, Russell. I know we haven't heard from you guys, but I really appreciate you guys presence here. Thank you for hanging out. Jaya, what's going on? Good to see you as well. And then also Tomas, man, thank you for uh, hanging out and chilling. Um, so let's go to Mark and then Ken. And if anybody else wants to chime in on this, we could do that. Um, 
I know Greg left, um, but uh, we'll go to Mark and Ken. Um, there's been so much great feedback. <laughs> I've been learning as well from all the great comments, so it's been awesome. Um, I'm hopefully going to try provide a different perspective and not repeat their their stuff. Um, but essentially, is I just want to focus on like the job search itself. And the way I, I really equate the job search is uh, I think of it as like a sales funnel. Um, I actually don't apply to the job descriptions. I think I personally think it's a waste of time because you have like hundreds, thousands of people just applying and you're just kind of like putting your, you're screaming into the void. And instead you should be more um, uh, tactical and strategic about how you approach that. So I think, I think of the sales, the sales funnel, sales funnel um, has kind of like the item model. Um, and so it's awareness, interest, desire, and action. And I think those are different steps within the funnel. So awareness is the hiring uh, recruiter and hiring manager aware of you and, your, and the services you can provide as a business of one, i.e. you try and be employed. Um, interest is like the screening phone interview uh, for this. Desire is the actual full interview. And then action is like you signing the deal. And so through that, you have various levers within the process of like, where are you leaking in the funnel? You know, maybe you can get the interview, but um, it, can, it can crush the screening interview as well. But when you go to like the coding interview and the like the, the super days, um, it's not doing so well, right? And so you can use those as steps to inform you, like where do you focus your time on um, through the, the sales, um, not through the sales, through the hiring process. Um, but essentially you're selling yourself, right? You're, sell, you're selling these services that you can provide to them. But I really want to focus on the awareness component because that's where you first start off is essentially... Um, for awareness, there's two strategies that I use. One of them, for the last time I job search, I, instead of applying to a single job, I just create content on LinkedIn with the goal of helping one person to build awareness from hiring managers to reach out to me. And that, that ended up getting multiple interviews in my current job at, at Homo. But the other strategy you can do is, you know, kind of like an SDR um, or, or business development representative is essentially you do like cold emails <laughs> and really targeting. Like you said, you're an amazing writer. So this can play to your strength. And so I essentially is like, I try to understand who is my customer as in like, who is, am I trying to sell my services to um, through which are my data skills, right? And so I identify which companies do I want to sell to and which companies um, sell to and which companies are the, like my target type of person to um, who will want to buy my services. Research and try to really profile and understand that. And then... Um, Oh, marketing funnel. Yeah, I think it might be the marketing funnel, sales funnel, marketing funnel, wherever it is, um, reading the comments. But essentially um, from there is I start researching. So I'll look at, if I'm, I'm focused on startups, so I go to Crunchbase. So like where are the, the current like Series A, Series B companies, maybe you're going for bigger companies, right? But then LinkedIn's really powerful. So now I'm like searching for recruiters, hiring managers. You know, I'll read their posts. Are they recently talking about posts? Are they recently um, saying like talking about the, the space? And now I use that as an entry to actually send an email or message them say like, hey, I see you have a job posting, um, you know, and you basically sell yourself saying like, why I'm the best person for this. And the thing you have to remember is like, yeah, it seems maybe it seems sleazy to be like networking, asking for something, but you're helping them because hiring is so freaking hard. And so you need to spoon feed all the amazing points that they'll bring back to their team as to why like you're the best person possible to be hired. And essentially is you're making their job easier by telling them direct and being very targeted of like, what's their pain points? How does your services as a data professional solve that? And then why like they should continue a conversation 
And in the end of the end mail, I don't even ask, like, do you want to meet with me? I say, I'm interested in meeting with you to discuss more about this opportunity. And from there, that's how I go about my, my job search and really being um, really intentional. And so instead of seeing like 100 different job applications, I'm really focused on certain people and really speaking to their needs. Mark, with the clutch advice, thank you so much, Mark. Appreciate that. That was that fire right there. Um, let's go to uh, let's go to Ken, and then um, and then you know what, Coastal, since you're still here, man, we'll get to your question. Um, I haven't, my wife hasn't come and yelled at me yet, so I'm, I can still play. Uh, well, I'll and- I'll try to make it relatively short. Uh, in typical Ken fashion, I will probably provide some slightly contrarian I- advice. Um, I'm interested to see what what the group thinks, but so the, the the first thing is related to how you describe that you're a good writer, and someone else who you know is a terrible writer uh, also said that they're a good writer, and there's that like dissonance there, right? I uh, do have a link to a blog or something you've written on your resume aside from the resume itself. Yeah, I think yeah, I do think I have that on my blog, and I don't want to I don't want to overstate the writing thing. I'm thinking. Um, I, maybe I shouldn't have said it in the same context as soft skills, but in any case, there are certain things that, <clears throat> right, if you say it on a resume or even a cover letter, I mean, you know, again, talk is cheap. So um, how do you demonstrate that or how does that come across? And uh, I think it's just like, yeah, having uh, links to blogs. So that's a great idea. Um, I think just communicating with people over LinkedIn, but uh, again, please, yeah. So I didn't want to, I don't want to overstate that too much, but please continue. Um, love to hear your advice. No, but I, I just wanted to create that emphasis on kind of showing in, in that way. At least for me, the the resume is a living document now. I, I don't think I've ever looked, like, gone on someone's resume unless it was just like, oh my God, this is so bad, throw it in the away pile without looking at their, at least their GitHub, or if they had a personal website, at least clicking through that. That's something that if it's there, I'm probably going to click on it and that at least gives me some insight into perhaps their creativity uh, or their writing ability or some of these other things. Um, the second thing that that I, I would like to touch on is a lot of people talked about not settling and, and finding the right role. I think that there is tremendous value in that and I wouldn't want to detract from that. But I also think that there is a, a lot of value in having a role within this domain to begin with because that gives you so many more opportunities to land other jobs within the domain. Like once someone has their first data science job, it is so much easier to land a second data science job in whatever domain they would want. So I would wanna say they like absolutely don't settle, but um, unless you have a, a, a lar- like crazy large time frame, or, or uh, in theory, you're okay with being like a little bit inefficient with your time, I would say it's there's a premium on landing a job sooner rather than later, just because you can accumulate those skills. And then you could transition into the larger pool of possible positions that are available to you after you have that initial position. Um, you know, I, I would also say there isn't a stigma, um, at least right now with changing roles in this domain. You can go in, you can create value for a company. And in six months, in a year, in, in a pretty short period of time, you can go somewhere else without having any negative affect associated with you. If you did that five, six times, or maybe even three, four times, that could be a problem. But from what I'm seeing, most companies do not have a problem with that in this day and age. And so uh, the the last thing I would say is it is kind of difficult to tell if a company is 
a great fit without working there. Um, honestly, I've been in interviews where everything looked great on paper. And then once I actually got into the company, I was like, oh, this is this is not <laughs> as advertised. And so I, I think that there are opportunities there. One last thing is that it, at any time, I think internships are a possibility. I think Nicole had mentioned contract work, if I recall as well. And those are great ways to get at least introduced to a company, to get familiar with the work, to see if it would be a good fit and, and also build experience. So hopefully that wasn't too much too fast. Uh, but those are kind of my, again, slightly contrarian takes on, on, uh, on your specific situation here. I hope it was, it was helpful. And thank you so much. And like, if anybody ever comes to asking you why you've been switching jobs every six to nine months for the last two years, you can just ask them if they've ever been in a position to turn down opportunities as they come to them. Because I sure as the hell have not been in positions where I just turn down opportunities and they come to me. People keep coming to me with job offers. What do you want me to do? Say no. Uh, and then just leave it at that. Um, Kosta, let's go to your question. Sorry, I'm on mute. Um, just before that, um, Gina, just one thing that may be worth thinking about is exactly how you structure that resume. Now, if you're applying to a, a small to mid-sized company where a hiring manager has time to see seven or eight resumes, uh, you would structure your resume a little bit differently. But if there's 100 people applying for the same role, right? And right now there's so many people coming out of graduate school and things like that with data science and interest in data science roles and data analytics roles, you got to make it stand out. Like I, I designed this thing like a flyer, right? Like think of a movie flyer. This is the, you're the, you're the showtime, you're the real show, right? You got to make it super easy. Like when you see the next Avengers poster come out, you know, when it's coming out, you know, which uh, uh, character it's about, uh, you know, all these things, you can glance at it and you'll know that information, right? So I kind of keep like a seven second rule with my resumes where I'm kind of like, it should, if, if a hiring manager accidentally sees my resume on their desk or on their colleague's desk, they should gather enough information from it that they want to read the rest of it, that they want to go see my GitHub, that they want to go see my uh, website and things like that. And then that builds that conversation, right? So if that's the early block that you're having trouble landing those interviews with, uh, yeah, I'd look at how you're that early part of that funnel that Mark was talking about. How do you attract attention to it, right? Um, there's so much. And and to be fair, I don't know if it's good advice or bad advice because my resumes could end up looking pretty zany and they have in the past. Um, but I, I think there's value in it and it's different. So you definitely stand out for better or for worse. Um, read my question, Harper. I think we've touched on some aspects of it, but the rest of it is, could actually be a pretty deep rabbit hole. Um, but I guess top line in a as you're trying to grow a ML engineering for a product kind of team, what's like a what are some real like bear traps that you've seen people you guys have seen people walk straight into like common bear traps? Uh, like I said, this could be I'm talking about a mid scale company. Let's 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 scope define this to uh, you've finished your pilot and you're looking to scale into a product, right? What are the things that people miss? So just rephrase that question saying if people are scaling their so, team. So, I mean, the reason I'm scoping this question is because, I mean, it's a different answer to an early stage research startup to like a large scale company that's already running, right? Uh, but let's say you've finished your pilot and you've done it with maybe one or two data scientists and you're looking to your first major launch, right? 
Um, but you need to build out your team for that. What's what are some of the big um, big mistakes or preconceived notions that people go into it thinking, oh, I I need to build this big and I need to scale, so I obviously need X, Y, and Z, but they actually don't. Flash, oh, I can't possibly need to do A, B, and C, but in reality, it's it's in depth, extremely important. Like I said, this could be a big rabbit hole, so it might be worth saving this for another podcast. Yeah, definitely. If anybody wants to chime in here, let me know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like zone in on the question here real quick, though. The question does it have to do with okay, over like you know, you're a fledgling team with some number of people getting some experience under your belt, and you're starting to overscope too quickly, thinking that you need to do this, that, and the other thing, but you actually don't. Or is it, okay, you're a fledgling team who's beginning to uh, grow larger and larger. Here are some of the challenges you might run into if you're not careful. Okay. Which way do you want to take that question? Um, probably, the, probably the latter, okay. where there is actual potential for scope. It's just the, the team as it exists is still trying to build that. Yeah, I uh, few tips i guess and then if anybody else wants to chime in go ahead and just uh, raise your hand there but i mean inefficient workflows i think is, is one thing like when you got manual processes every step of the way from data extraction to cleaning to modeling to deployment everything is manually and, and done with custom-made lines of code or you know if you're still copying code between projects you don't have like a central repo of useful code snippets and you have to like reinvent the wheel for every project. Um, that's you know another pitfall. Um, I mean, sometimes you could just end up with just really long ramp up times. You know, get get started. You know, tooling and then stuff like that. If you have, if you're relying overly on your software expertise and other teams. Um, I mean, then there's other stuff that you should worry about. Long long retrainings cycles and things like that because yeah go for it if you want to clarify uh, i mean so it's to a point it's like uh, i've seen situations where there's this uh, there's potentially a, a preconceived notion that hey we need this um we need this fully automated training experimentation pipeline when in reality it's the data extraction that needs automation for example right actually running the experiments you might not need to run that many experiments because you've already kind of got a model that did the proof of concept and you're going to improve that first you now need this data pipeline that's coming through right like so that that's potentially one situation where there might be too much of an emphasis on uh, the experimentation being automated and you know it, like do you see that uh, is is it a pattern that you've noticed that people continually misidentify the bits that need to be um optimized in a in a project or in a team and where are those um and what are those things that we usually identify misidentify i mean i'd love to hear from from i think mark or, or nick might have some insight here hopefully um uh i mean the, the the whole thing about collaboration can get hard right especially like you know machine learning is more than just code data science is more than just code it's not like software engineering where we just you know commit code to uh get or whatever we still got to worry about like you mentioned pipelines and experiments and hyperparameters and all that stuff so just facilitating collaboration if you could find ways to make that easier from the jump that'll be uh crucial and and extremely helpful um i mean 
supposed to just leave? No, no you're no, there. No, still here. Other, other people are, are leaving. Uh, but yeah, let, let's see if uh, like if Mark got any insights on that uh, or any tips. Um, yeah, yeah, look, look to be on, to be honest, I think I think the question is a little bit overly broad right now, purely like for the lack of time. Um, this might be something that is better like defined and better discussed broader. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Mark, if you got any insights, let let me know. If not, then it's it's all good. We can wrap just, it up. I was just about to ask a clarifying question so I can give better advice. <laughs> I, I've, I've already everything. come up with about ten questions that I could ask myself to clarify this one. So I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's not the right time. Yeah, but look, I, think, it, I think the key thing I got from there is like, uh, at least from a startup perspective, I focus on prioritization. That's the thing I had to get really good at. And so <clears throat> there's this, this trade off between am I going to build essentially frameworks and, and documentation to make this process smoother and repeatable or I'm going to go on to more impacting, build, build a new feature that will get us more money. Um, and there's well, a so essentially, if, if, if I could butt in there for a second, essentially what you're saying is you need someone with a real understanding of what the product needs are, right? Like you, you yeah. almost need someone who's got the, those product management skills and be able to identify what's actually necessary. Yeah. So for, for me, like there's always a constant going back and forth of like, all right, I, I built this tool and now customers are using it. And now they're requesting all these custom analytics and now I'm doing custom analytics and the less feature building. And because I'm doing these custom analytics all the time, now I have to build out documentation and tooling to repeat this process again. Um, then it became a priority for me to be like, oh, actually, Larry, let me just go create, let's have this repo where you can create these functions that we can, all the other data scientists can pull from as well. And so, yeah, I think it really goes back down to like, where, where's the real big priority uh, for you? And like, um, I really learned this. I had a whole conversation, I think months ago, talking about prioritization is, <laughs> you know, what's gonna get my boss a promotion? What's gonna get me a promotion? And I can say no to a lot of things um, and only focus on those high impact things. And once I started doing that, my life became a lot easier because like now I'm doing less work, but now I'm driving way more impact. And many times those those kind of like structural things um, aren't aren't the thing that gets me the promotion. Um, and but some things are. So it, it it really depends. And it's really being critical, like what are the top three things for this quarter that's gonna really drive that? Um, so like last quarter, mine was like building data access. So that was really a lot of internal tooling and making this process repeatable and and dependable. But other other quarters, it was literally like, you know put out this new feature for this customer um, or for, for our customers and our product. Right. And then I don't even care about documentation at that point. Then I'm, I'm just focused on getting this feature out. Mark, thank you. Coastal. Yeah. Great question. Like definitely type this out, send it to me. I would love to get this going on like a, a LinkedIn thread. I think a lot of us could add, could add value. You could tag all the, all the OGs, uh, Joe, Vin, uh, you know, as well, Dave Langer. Speaking of, I haven't seen Dave Langer in like six months, man, Dave, miss you. Come back. Uh, Vin, been a while as well. Um, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you guys so much for for hanging out. 52 weeks, that's one year we've been out here doing this. Uh, could not have done it without you guys. It probably would not have been as good as it has been without you guys. I'm grateful, eternally grateful to every single one of you, everyone who's been coming. Um, I know there's there's a lot of people that, that, that I haven't seen in a while and I miss you guys. Hopefully you make time during the holiday season to come and hang out. A few announcements though. Do not forget that I'm going live on LinkedIn three times in the next seven days. So Brent Dykes tomorrow, we will be talking about data storytelling. That is at 11 a.m. Central Time. 
with Brent Dykes uh, on Wednesday. Um, at, at some point during the afternoon, central time on Wednesday, I'll be talking to Joe Reese live on, um, on, on LinkedIn as well. And then the following Saturday, that's October 9th, talking to Brittany Doe. We're going to be talking about Brittany's book, uh, Bigger Than Leadership. Um, so looking forward to talking to Brittany about that. Also, um, do not forget to sign up for Dedicated Conference. Kate Strashney, thank you for hanging out for a few minutes. Uh, definitely go check out uh, that conference. I'll be presenting a team, uh, presenting a presentation about how you can uh, strategize ML ops for your teams. Uh, so not necessarily getting into technical details, but um, talking about when it's a good time to uh, start looking at an ML ops strategy. Also, uh, I was on the Narrative Science podcast. Hopefully you guys get a chance to check that out. I was on there with Kate Cassidy Shields, uh, which is huge for me. Narrative Science is a, a huge company. It's, and just to, to get them to want to talk to me for whatever reason, they, they thought it would be a good idea to have me on. And that was cool. Really appreciated that. Thank you, Cassidy, for having me on. Also, I booked an interview with the author of The Creativity Code, Marcus du He is a uh, the uh, public-facing mathematician at Oxford University. He's all over the BBC doing all these documentaries and things like that. So uh, I'm excited about that. Um, We're going to be talking mostly about his book, Creativity. Uh, This book is uh, Creativity Code. It's all about deep learning's ability to help augment human creativity. Um, And also we'll be talking about his new book that is coming out as well. So I'm excited for that. Dude, thank you guys so much. One year. Let's keep it going for the next 52 weeks. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you guys so much for hanging out. Another huge episode. My friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. Peace.